0: Thank you, Elizabeth. That was beautiful. Even before she began singing that piece, I was reflecting on the goodness of our Lord to give us songwriters who are so equipped, so anointed with gifts to write such beautiful songs for us to sing. It's the goodness of our Lord to give us many gifts in the body. We should thank Him for that often. Uh, Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. The text to which I'd like to turn our attention begins in John 19 verse 38. We've been working our way through John's gospel, specifically through the passion narrative. And we've noted over the last few weeks how John masterfully weaves together many different themes from the Old Testament to show us more about who Christ is. We saw last week that Christ is our final Passover sacrifice, that he truly is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We saw also that Christ is the rock of our salvation who was struck that we might be satisfied. And we saw that Christ is the fountain of God by which we might be washed of our filth and cleansed of our iniquity. Tonight, we'll continue through to the end of chapter 19, and we'll see some of the effects of Christ's work. We'll see how the cause of Christ is more precious to his people than anything this world can offer. More pre- precious than a worldly reputation, more precious than position or status, more precious than all of our worldly goods. And we'll spend time seeing how Christ's death liberated two men from slavery to fear. And we'll consider how we too might be liberated from the fear in our lives and freed to a godly fear. A fear of sacrificial, God-honoring living. So let's begin by reading John 19, verse 38, going through verse 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews... "...asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews." Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because it was the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in need of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would take the blinders of sin off of our eyes, that you would open up the text to us that we might see Christ more clearly, that we might know that how precious he is to us and how much the calling of Christ calls us to sacrifice. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The first thing that I want us to see in our text is that Christ's death overcomes our fear of man. Christ's death overcomes our fear of man. Verse 38 mentions to us a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And we know very little about this man. He's mentioned only in the Gospels in relation to his activity for caring for Jesus' body. We know little else. We don't even know for sure where Arimathea was. But what John does tell us is that Joseph of Arimathea was fearful. Verse 38 says that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Luke tells us that Joseph was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin which was the ruling council of Jewish elders. He was in a position of influence, a position of power, a position of status. He had clout in the community. And all of this means he had much to lose in the eyes of the world. You could imagine the pressure that he was under. For him to speak out in favor of Jesus meant risking his position on the Sanhedrin, risking his status. His reputation among friends that he had labored beside. If he spoke out in favor of viewing Christ as the Messiah, he might be put out, ostracized, removed from his position. He was willing to secretly confess Christ, but not willing to publicly associate with him. He was unwilling to jeopardize his position of power, unwilling to risk losing the prestige that comes with a position of influence. So he was silent. He was a man... Crippled by fear, fear that prevented him from publicly displaying and proclaiming his true allegiance. J.C. Ryle comments that open sin has killed its thousands, but fear of man kills its ten thousands. And we've seen this kind of fear before. We've seen this kind of self-preservation that leads to a kind of deception before. In fact, when Adam was in the garden... He had been given everything that his upright nature could desire. God had given him a clear direction. You can have anything. Eat from any of the trees of the garden. Anything you might want. But if you eat from this one tree, you will die. And as we all know, after Adam and Eve ate from that one forbidden tree, God came for them and called for them. And Adam responded. He said, I heard your voice, God. I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. And I hid myself. Adam's fear drove him to hide in the bushes and to make for himself a covering of leaves. And to blame the the whole episode on that woman that you gave me, God. That woman you gave me, she's the one that tempted me to do it. Shifting the blame, shifting it all the way back to God. We see other examples of this kind of fear, this fear of terror, this fear of loss in the Bible. For example, in Genesis 20... Abraham is traveling in the land of Gerar and he lies to Abimelech, the ruler of the land, hiding that, the true identity of his wife. He tells Abimelech that Sarah was his sister rather than his wife. And his fear of man led him to a situation that put he and his wife and even Abimelech in danger. Saul, too, had this kind of fear. Saul feared that he would lose his kingdom to a scrawny little shepherd boy named David. And so he sought to kill David to kill anyone that stood in his way. Even in this Gospel of John, we've seen this fear-driven silence. In chapter 7, verse 13, during the Feast of Booths, John tells us that many people thought Jesus was a good man, but they were afraid to speak openly about him for fear of the Jews. Similarly, in chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who was born blind, and when the Jewish leaders began to investigate, the parents of the formerly blind man were unwilling to speak freely about the incident. And John tells us in verse 22 that their hesitation was because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, that one would be put out of the synagogue. They were afraid to lose their status, their reputation, their position. They were unwilling to bear the reproach of their people for the sake of Christ. In chapter 12 of John, we've seen that Some of the religious leaders were even willing to believe something about this Christ. But their fear kept them from acknowledging Christ publicly. Chapter 12 verses 42 and 43 say, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. John diagnoses the problem as loving the glory that comes from man. They loved ease. They loved comfort. They loved being thought of as good, upright, upstanding, moral folk. They, be- they loved being seen as the ones that had the right theology. The ones that knew their Bible best. The ones that really loved God. Some of this might sound familiar. We too can be frozen by fear of man. Frozen into silence because we don't want to lose something. We don't want to give something up. Sometimes, as spouses, we let our troubled marriage slide further and further into trouble. Because we're afraid of giving up this facade that we've built up. That we have nothing but matrimonial bliss. We have this public image of having a perfect marriage. And we like that public image. And we're afraid to really admit we have a problem. We're afraid to reach out and get help because we're afraid that people might actually know that we are a sinner in need of help. Our pride and our fear of losing our reputation, our fear of really being known as needy, can prevent us from getting the help we need when we really need it. And we instead allow things to decay further and further without getting any help. Or sometimes at work, we might be tempted by fear of man to remain silent... Instead of speaking, maybe you notice someone at work doing something illegal, or maybe not illegal, just certainly immoral, under the table. And we're afraid to open our mouths. We're afraid it might cost us our reputation in the eyes of our boss. It might make our co workers not like us anymore. It might even cost us our position. So, just like Joseph of Arimathea, we might be tempted to keep our mouth shut in order to keep our position. Or maybe we feel this temptation to remain silent at church. Perhaps we see a pattern of sin in someone's life, and rather than risk straining your relationship with them, you allow them to just persist in what appears to be a pattern of sin. Rather than humbly and lovingly coming to them and asking them about what looks like sin in their life, rather than believing that faithful are the wounds of a friend, we instead choose to remain silent, fearful of how they might respond Fearful of potential conflict. And so we let that person continue to drift in their sinful pattern. Our fear drives us to remain silent. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five tells us that the fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man can snare us. It can trap us. It can immobilize us. It can freeze us instead of us acting like we should. This fear-driven silence is not what we're called to have. We're called instead to be a people that fears the Lord rather than fearing man. We're called to trust in the Lord and His safety. And we're called to speak out, even if it might cost us. Christ even spoke about a godly fear that puts the fear of man into perspective. He calls us to have a vision of God that is so clear that it can't help but wash away the fear of man. He said in Matthew 10, 28... Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Christ is calling us to focus on God first. And then having filled our eyes with the truth of who God is and what he's done. We'll necessarily be driven to obey him. Rather than be suffered underneath our sinful fearful temptations. And take heart believer that this is what the gospel does for us. When we have a vision of the glory of Christ on the cross, when we understand what happens on Calvary, we'll begin to see that we don't have to be controlled by our fear of man. On the cross, we see Jesus's perfect sacrifice in our place. We see Jesus as the man that perfectly feared the Lord and willingly gave up his position, willingly gave up his status, his reputation in order for us to be accepted by God. His perfect obedience, his perfect fearing of the Lord becomes ours through his selfless sacrifice on, our, on the cross. And that's what happened to Joseph of Arimathea. Christ's death emboldens Joseph to speak. Mark tells us that, that Joseph, quote, took courage. This man that was formerly afraid of the Jews now boldly goes to Pilate and asks for the very body of Christ. He saw Christ on the cross and is so moved by the Holy Spirit that he is now willing to sacrifice his position, willing to give up his comfort, willing to bear the reproach of publicly being named a follower of Christ. That he, he breaks with his former behavior of secrecy and he publicly demonstrates his allegiance to Christ. We have to see what is happening on the cross if we're ever going to move our souls from the fear of man. This kind of terror terror-filled kind of fear into a godly fear, a fear of awe, and a fear of reverence for God. On the cross, we have the demonstration of God's holiness. We have the evidence of God's eternal righteousness and His perfect justice. And we see what happens when that righteousness comes in contact with sin. The sins of God's people are counted to Christ, and He is given the punishment that His sinful people deserve. He's given the full reproach. He's given the full wrath The full penalty that we deserved, And do you see the holiness of God in this event on Calvary's hill? How God will not stand for a single drop of unrighteousness to exist in his presence. God will not permit the single slight white lie. Not a single impure thought. Not a single hint of man fearing to remain unpunished. But the cross doesn't only demonstrate his righteous standard and his holy disposition. It also demonstrates the great lengths to which he's willing to go in order to purify his people. He's willing to take on flesh and to give up the majesty of glory in order that he might enter the frailness of humanity. He was willing to suffer the reproach of mankind in our place. He fully feared the Lord in our place and was willing to endure the punishment of our man fearing in his body on the cross. Also that we might be freed from our fear of man so that we might be liberated from our bondage to fear. When we grasp what is going on on the cross, we no longer have to remain in our fear of terror. We don't have to keep our fear of man. The kind of fear of punishment that drives us away from the object of our fear. We don't have to be like Adam, hiding in the bushes. Fearful that God might actually see us in the nakedness of our sin. Adam was afraid of God because he was afraid of the punishment for his sin, which is death. But when we gaze at the cross, when we see the punishment of sin removed... We no longer have to hear the judgment of God saying that we have sinned and earned death, but rather we hear the pronouncement of God himself saying it is finished. The curse of death for man fearing has been removed and the condemnation has been taken away. The sentence has been lifted. When we remember that, we have our fear of terror transformed into a godly kind of fear, a fear of reverence and awe. We stand and gaze at the cross with a sense of amazement. We have our mouths hanging open in wonder. And we say, why did Christ do this for me? Why was I given such a gift? We can say with Charles Wesley, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me, who him to death pursued? What amazing love! How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? When we see the glory of Christ displayed in His work on the cross, then we can begin to conquer our fear of man. I no longer have to be silent and watch my marriage crumble. I can speak to my spouse in love, trusting the Proverbs that say that a soft answer turns away wrath and that a gentle word can break bone. I can go to my friend or a counselor or a pastor and I can seek help when I need help in my marriage. And I can risk losing my facade of a reputation. Because I know that Christ has borne the wrath that I deserve. Any shortcomings, any sin, any weaknesses that I have committed in my marriage have been dealt with on the cross. And any shame that has been earned has been bought by Christ himself. Any reproach that was merited by me has been borne by Christ. I can let go of my reputation. And at work, I can speak lovingly to my boss about his immoral activity, even if it might cost me. Even if if I might lose my job. I know that Christ has already provided for me on the cross everything that I might need. If He has given me eternal salvation, if He has cared for my soul in such a complete way, will He not care for me in this life? God will not depart me. He and His love is strong enough to save me and to keep me and to care for me. As we read earlier in the Psalm, God is our refuge and strength. And the cross frees me from the fear of talking to someone else about their sin. Once I see the great lengths to which Christ would go to save His people, how can I not be willing to talk to my friend that I see in sin? If Christ would bear my sin on the cross, will I not also risk the unpleasantness of an awkward conversation? If Christ would give up His very life for His people, will I not follow Him and give up my comfort for the sake of another soul? Christ's death on the cross frees us from the fear of man by freeing us from the fear of loss, the fear of punishment. And by doing so frees us to fear God, just as Christ did in our place. Second, Christ's death not only overcomes our fear of man, but Christ's death also changes our priorities. Our text shows us that Christ's death changes our priorities. Joseph of Arimathea is not the only once fearful man now emboldened by the death of Christ. We see Nicodemus in our passage, and he demonstrates a willingness to sacrifice his status and his reputation among men. John reminds us in our passage that Nicodemus hadn't come to Jesus openly when he came to him in chapter 3 of this gospel, but he came to him by night. He was afraid of being seen talking to Jesus in the daytime, afraid to be associated with him, afraid to be counted among his disciples. And so he only would venture to see him under the cover of darkness. But Nicodemus has had his priorities changed. Christ's death on the cross has changed him from a fearful closet disciple of Christ into someone willing not only to have his reputation threatened, but someone willing to boldly give his possessions to Christ. This man that previously wouldn't have been seen with Christ now brings 75 pounds of expensive aloes and myrrh in order to help embalm the body of Christ. These gifts from Nicodemus were exceedingly expensive. Which reminds us of Mary in John 12 who anointed uh, anointed Jesus with a pound of expensive oil. This world cannot understand this kind of devotion. Judas couldn't understand it, why why Mary would give such an expensive gift in John 12. And the world can't understand why Nicodemus would bring such a costly gift to put on the body of Christ. Why are you giving such lavish gifts to your deceased rabbi. Why wouldn't you give why would you give such costly things to a corpse? Nicodemus didn't know that Jesus was going to be resurrected. He didn't know that Christ was coming back from the dead. He was merely doing what his devoted heart led him to do in order to honor his king. And I ask you, are you willing to be this kind of generous for Christ? Would you give such costly gifts to such a seemingly worthless endeavor? Maybe Christ is calling you tonight to give up Some sort of worldly position that you might have some sort of worldly position of influence and risk everything in order to honor your king. Just as Nicodemus was doing. Maybe Christ is calling you to give of your earthly possessions like Nicodemus does in order to honor your king. Perhaps the devotion of Nicodemus has shown you that you're holding too tightly to the things of this world, to your pleasures, to your comforts, to your clothes, your computers, your cars or anything else. Instead, you're being called to listen to the voice of your king, calling you to reevaluate your priorities. Ask yourself some questions. What things excite you? Spending time playing with your toys or spending time communing with Christ? What do you look forward to more? Reading and praying with your God? Or indulging for hours in some pastime that only distracts you from your devotion to God? Or maybe instead of your possessions, Christ is calling you to redirect your very life, to re-examine the priorities of your life. Maybe you thought you'd be heading in one direction. You thought you would be landing in a certain place, landing a particular job, climbing up the ladder of a certain profession. But God is now asking you to re-evaluate. Perhaps give up something in order to serve Him. God has often redirected the lives of people in order to serve the purposes of His kingdom. God... Saved a zealous Pharisee like Paul and turned him into an apostle. God's taken formal lawyers like John Calvin and turned them into pastors. He's taken former slave traders like John Newton and made them into mighty instruments in his kingdom. He's taken successful doctors like Martin Lloyd-Jones and turned them into preachers. Just like God had used the death of Christ to redirect the lives of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. He often uses the cross help people reprioritize their lives in order to serve his kingdom. When we realize what Christ has done for us on the cross, we realize our old set of priorities might just be in vain. Before the cross, we see the great cost. Before we see the great cost and the great generosity of God on the cross, now we've been freed and we can be generous, generous for others, for God's glory. Before the cross, we want to plan our lives according to our desires, our preferences, our wants, rather than seeking God's kingdom first. But on the cross, we see the great love of the father displayed in the death of the son, and we can't help but have our priorities realigned. You may not change your career trajectory, but you'll have a whole new outlook on life. You'll work at your job as unto the Lord rather than unto man, rather than unto self. You'll serve with faithfulness and you'll honor your superiors because that honors God himself. You'll sacrifice for the sake of others rather than using others as a stepping stone for your career advancement. And you'll see your workplace as a mission field of potential brothers and sisters in Christ rather than a minefield of potential relationship conflicts. Brothers and sisters, let us strive to be bold for Christ. Like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea turned out into the end. We need not be dominated by our fear of man or by fear of losing our reputation. Rather, we can see Christ on the cross and know the Father's love for us. Know of His provision. Know of His promised protection for us. We can know that God will provide for His kingdom, for His children. And we can have our priorities realigned according to the priorities of His kingdom. We can have generous hearts that are sensitive to the needs of others. And we can give freely like Nicodemus Even though the world says that our gifts are for a hopeless cause. We can freely confess Christ. Even when the world might threaten to take away our status and our reputation. Because we know that that is exactly what Christ has done for us. He's given up his station to be associated with sinners like us. He's freely given up his possessions including his very own life. So that he might generously give us all things. Including our very own life. Before I close, I want to remind us that these gifts of Christ are available to any that would come to him by faith. Christ's generous gift of salvation through his work on the cross are only available to those that would confess Christ as Savior and Lord. Won't you come to him tonight and believe that he is who he says he is in his word? He is a gentle and kind king that offers forgiveness and peace to all that would come to him. But he also is the king of holiness and the king of justice that will return one day. To judge all those that reject his offer of salvation. Hear of this Christ and know of his grace and come to him this day for the forgiveness of your sins. We have tonight another reminder of the generosity of our God, and that is the Lord's table. Before us, we have the ordained elements of bread and the fruit of the vine. Christ's very body is pictured for us, showing us the great lengths to which he went. In order to redeem us from our bondage to sin. And Christ's own blood is pictured for us in the cup. So that we see the depths to which he would stoop. In order to atone all of us from our sins. As we partake of these elements. Think again of the great love with which he has loved us. Know afresh how much the father desires good for you. And think again how far Christ was willing to go. In order that you might be brought out of fear. And into his very own household. This meal is ordained for the people of Christ, for the people of Christ only. If you have not yet come to faith and profess that faith publicly through baptism, if you're not marked with genuine genuine fruit of discipleship like we see in Acts chapter 2, marked by devotion to the apostolic teaching found in God's Word, marked by devotion to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer, then I urge you to let this plate pass. But if you have come to Christ, then let us eat together. Let us fellowship together. Let us commune together with Christ by His Spirit. Let me join us in prayer and ask the Lord to bless these elements.